Happy Columbus Day to all the listeners out there. We're celebrating today when Columbus sailed the ocean blue back in 14-something. I don't forget, I forgot what the rhyme is. And to all the woke people out there that doesn't that don't celebrate Columbus Day, happy Indigenous Peoples Day to you. Expl- this, explain that to me. Look, history's complicated, but you know what doesn't have to be complicated is buying a new home. And Tony, we've got a sponsor this week, Live Oak Real Estate. If you're out there, you're looking to buy or sell a home and you need some help with some direction. You need somebody to help you out, find you the deal that you're looking for, the dream home that you've been dreaming about, you and your spouse, uh, or if you're looking to get married and you're looking for that first home. You need to call Dustin or Rossi today. What's the number? You might actually be stuck in a house you don't want no more. Get rid of that thing. Get rid of it. Like a bad habit. Get rid of it. The phone number is 870-520-2522. And you know what? If you don't want to talk to somebody, you don't want to get sold right off the bat, Go to listwithliveoak.com. Look at all their selection. You know what? Just get out there and start looking. There ain't nothing wrong with that. Just start looking at what you really want. Stop living in that place you don't like. There's rats. The ceiling's falling in. It smells like Uncle Joe's feet. Get rid of that thing. Yeah, don't settle. Hey, and you know what? While you're at it, don't settle for that Chinese takeout that you got. Throw that junk in the trash. It's not worth the time eating. You're going to be hungry again in 35 minutes. What you need to worry about is you need to worry about where you can get some food that's going to stick with you. You need to call Lazari today at 931-4700. Here in the Jonesboro area, Lazari's has been serving Jonesboro for over 20 years with their premium Italian food. You do not want to miss out on an opportunity to eat there today. What's your favorite dish there, Brian? All of them. How can you how can you how can you nail it down to just one? When you talk about appetizers, if you want to talk about shrimp scampi, I'll get it out eventually. Man, you're having a hard time on if this Columbus if Day. If you're talking about toasted ravioli, if you're talking about forget about it, they've got you covered. Everything from pasta to steaks to seafood, Lazari's has it. It's hard to pick just one because there's so many things to choose from. Hey, go ahead. Order two entrees. They won't mind. Go see Lazari's today. And you know what? You can leave that restaurant in style from a brand new motorcycle from Jonesboro Cycle and ATV. Listen, if you want to get the highway, go get it. If you want to hit the open waters, go get it. Get after if you, you want to hit those dirt trails, ain't nobody stopping you. They have everything from motorcycles to dirt bikes to four-wheelers. You know, pastors, hold, pastors tune in real quick. Are you getting sick and tired of your guests huffing and puffing getting to that front door? Go get you an easy go golf cart. They've got one, two, three rows. They can seat up to five people on one of these things. Go get you a golf cart and let them ushers usher your guests to that front door. Go ahead and get that third row. Your church yeah, is growing. Yeah, yeah. Don't settle for anything than less than the best. From Jonesboro Cycle, you, you buy. Can, they will come. You can do you can do one of two things. You can see their inventory at JonesboroCycle.com, or you can call 870-935-2887. You can use promo code. Crucial. When you're checking out online, get you 10% off anything that you're getting there. And you know what? If you go in in person, just tell them that Tony and Brian from the Conversation Since You See If They Don't Give You a Little Bit of a Deal There. Yeah, don't forget, it's the Crucial Conversation. you got to remember that word, Crucial, to get 10% off of that promo code. Brian, I woke up this morning, and it was 47 degrees outside. That's cool. When I went to bed, I was hot. When I woke up, I was cold. But what if I don't want to be hot and I don't want to be cold? Who do I need to get in touch with? You need to get in touch with Nat Anderson at Anderson Heat and Air. These guys here are the real deal. It doesn't matter if you have a new home construction, if you're trying to fix that raggedy home that you're living in still because you hadn't called Live Oak yet. It doesn't matter what your situation is. Anderson Heat and Air is there to help you out. You can contact them by calling 870-664-1967. Stop delaying. It's only going to get worse.
it. Work through those vents, get some circulation going, get a nice cool breeze in your home. Our last sponsor for this Columbus Day podcast is the Drifted Drum Company. This is a new company, Brian, that I'm very excited about. Dr. April Jones owns this company, and she also wrote a book called No Mess, No Message. You know what? Everybody's got a story to tell. Why don't you tell it? If you go to thedriftedrumcompany.com and type in promo code CRUCIAL, get 10% off anything on her website. I really strongly suggest that book. She sent me that book, Brian. I really enjoy that book. I've not gotten very far in it, but what I have gotten to, she has a great story. Her son has a cancer survivor, and you know what? He's got a story to tell, and they're not going to put tape over his mouth. You know what? Go to thedrifteddrum.com and use that promo code CRUCIAL at checkout for 10% off. Guys, we hope you enjoy this podcast. Uh, last year, uh, went through a season in leadership, dealing with some issues in leadership that were very difficult, but it also revealed some areas in my life that I needed to do better in. And that's the beautiful thing about the grace of God, is He allows difficulty to refine some things in you. He doesn't bring them in our lives to destroy us. He builds something in us if we allow Him to build it in us. And so in my journal, I wrote down some of the things that God is dealing with me, showing me some areas of my life that need to improve. And that's always tough because I think we naturally want to think we got it together. You know, we, I can do this. I'm, I'm, I'm fully in control. But most of the time, it's the difficulties that reveal those things. So, um, yeah, there's some tear stains on, on the journal. Hey guys, this is Brian. And I'm Tony. And you're listening to the Crucial Conversation Podcast. Today, Brian and I have the privilege of sitting down with a man that um, holds a big impact in my life. Uh, The year was 2004 in a little town called Wapella, Illinois. And I'm sure that 99% of the people listening to this will be like, is that not Chicago? That's the only place in Illinois I know about. But Wapella, Illinois holds a very, very special place in my heart. It's where the Illinois District Campground is and where um, kids and adults of all ages meet together for camps every year. And this year, it was 2004, I was 14 years old, and there was a guy by the name of Tim Gaddy and a guy by the name of Todd Gaddy that was our speakers at that specific uh, camp meeting. It was a teen camp. And the whole week I was, I was kind of struggling, um, but on Friday night, God chose to lay on Tim Gaddy's heart to preach a message called World Changers. And I left that camp meeting completely changed. I went home in the Cobden, Illinois church, and I knelt down to the left of the pulpit. And I prayed and I said, God, Will you please speak to me one last time to confirm what I felt at camp? And it was at that time where I received my calling into the ministry. At that time, I didn't know what it was. But it was because God laid a message on Brother Tim Gaddy's heart to preach called World Changers. And today, Brian, we are blessed to have Brother Tim Gaddy on the podcast. Brother Gaddy, thank you so much for spending time with us. This thank time. you very much. I'm honored to be here. Well, we are super excited. You're an Illinois guy yourself. I am. Go Cubs. Go, absolutely. Yeah, we can We can both believe in that. I had Brother McCall on not too long ago, and he was Go Cardinals. I was Go Cubs. Mm, there's prayer for him. 
<laughs> it can be restored. Anyway, right. anyway, Brother Gaddy, thank you so much for sitting down with us. Um, tell us a little bit about who you are. We all know that you're the Arkansas District Superintendent. You pastor a thriving church in Cabot, Arkansas. But tell us how you got there. Tell us a little bit about your, your growing up, how you became a preacher. Well, thank you, Tony and Brian. First of all, I'm very honored to be on this podcast with you, and I appreciate what you're doing through Crucial Conversation podcast. Uh, I am an Illinois guy, so I'm a Yankee by birth, and um, uh, I'm, I'm thankful for that. I am a transplanted Yankee. I've lived in Arkansas for and now 27, 28 years. So um, Arkansas is home. I graduated from high school uh, in 1988, and I attended Bible College in California. Uh, I had a pretty dramatic call to the ministry my senior year of high school, and right after my graduation, in fact. And after Bible College, I uh, preached a revival for James Lumpkin in Little Rock here in the state. And when I preached for him, what I didn't know is he was looking for a student pastor. And so at the end of that revival, he asked me if I'd stay on and be the youth pastor at the church. Uh, I had no connection to Arkansas other than preaching that revival. And uh, 27 years later, here I am. Uh, I, I've come to absolutely love this state, uh, the district, and uh, it truly is home now. My parents live here now. They moved from Chicago uh, many years ago. And uh, so I'm very blessed to be in Arkansas. Uh, probably the most important, I am husband to Stacy of 25 years. Uh, I'm dad to Madison and Landon. Madison is 21 and Landon is 19. Madison is a senior at University of Central Arkansas and Landon is a sophomore at Urshan College. So it's empty nest for Stacy and me now, but we're enjoying this season of our life. Uh, and then to be the pastor of New Life in Cabot is quite an honor. Uh, and so it's an exciting, exciting thing to be in the work of God. So... I want to ask you right off the bat, Brother Gaddy, what, is, what does it do to you as a father to see both of your kids following in truth? Well, I think the scripture talks about it, and I really live it, uh, and I've come to find it to be true. There's no greater joy than to know that your children love the truth and walk in truth. And uh, both of my children, thankfully, and I say this humbly, are at the place where they're not only loving truth, but they're following after it and seeking the call of God on their life. And as a parent, uh, I don't know if there's a parent out there that at least a few times in their life hasn't got up in the middle of the night and sat in the living room and thought, am I doing this right? Am I putting the right things in my kids? And then years later, when you see them walking after what you've taught them, uh, I'm, I'm just humbled and I'm thankful for that. I don't take that for granted. I'm not presumptuous about that. You know, people have asked me, hey, your kids are doing, seem to be doing well. What's the key? I don't have a key other than just putting good things in them and just doing what the Scripture says, bringing them up in the way they should go sure. and trying to guide their life. But there is no greater joy. There's no preaching. There's no church victory. There's no district victory that even compares to uh, my children loving the Lord and walking after and wanting to be involved in kingdom work. I've heard you say before um, when you talked about when you first got to Cabot, uh, I think I heard the story that you were at a restaurant and you walked out because you started the work that was in Cabot. Um, was was Madison born at that time? She was a year and a half old when we went to she Cabot. Um, I've heard the story that when you walked out of a restaurant and you started thinking about the call of God on your life to start the work in that city and you said 
that I'm here to start a church, but no one knows it here but me. Right. What was that like whenever you, you first left Word of Flame and you went into the city of Cabot? Well, it was kind of a, a strange feeling because, number one, I knew I was in the will of God because, first and foremost, I had submitted that to spiritual authority. I felt it from the Lord, but then I had submitted that decision to my pastor. He felt a witness. Uh, we went through that decision-making process together. So because of that, I knew I was supposed to be there. The other feeling on the other side of the spectrum was, okay, I know I'm supposed to be here, but how do I walk this out? And to be honest with you, Brian, with what you just said and recounting that story of the restaurant, it's an overwhelming feeling when you realize that the future of your entire ministry and family resides in what you do from here forward. And you're the only one, at least it seems right now, that can do anything about that. You know, you don't have a base of people or a church building or of even a foundation upon which to build so you have to really depend on the lord and i know that sounds like a cliche but god really responds when he's all you have to depend on i think it's easy sometimes in ministry to have things we lean on but when he's all you have you set yourself up for a lot of potential miracles and power so yeah, it was overwhelming. Just to be blunt, it was very overwhelming. And it caused me to really start digging down into why I'm here. What are we going to do? And, and seeking the Lord for what's the next step. What were some of those miracles that happened in those early days? Well, looking back, most I would say the miracles that happened were just divine appointments God gave us with people. Um, we knew one lady when we started in Cabot. Her name was Merva Bennett. In fact, we started having Bible studies in her living room. That was our first public kind of service. Um, what I didn't realize was all the, pe all the people she was connected to. Um, and she would go down every Wednesday uh, for sirloin tips, lunch at the steakhouse in Jacksonville. And so I kind of learned that pattern of her life. In fact, I went down there with her a few times. My Is wife that restaurant her. still open in Jacksonville on the way home, Tony? And I'm not swinging. <laughs> tips don't sound bad. Yeah, it's called Barn Hills now. But uh, oh, I'm out. Yeah, no, it's okay. Yeah, you guys probably know about Barn Hills. Yeah, yeah that's yes. right. What's that supposed to mean? Yeah. <laughs> well, from where you guys live, that's what I meant by that. I think they're, it's from up there. Uh, but anyways, uh, I didn't realize the people she was connected to. Our first harvest field uh, in our church was a group of waiters and waitresses and cooks and dishwashers from that restaurant that she would frequent. So that was miraculous because, you know, we had a call. We didn't know where that was going to take us, but God put us in contact with critical people uh, that then opened up harvest fields for us. So, you know, we started teaching Bible studies and baptizing people at the, from the restaurant that worked there. And that was miraculous because we didn't have, I didn't have any connection to that restaurant. And then from there, that gave us the foundation to begin to have a few people coming that then started the formation of the church. So initially the miracles were in people. I want to ask you one question before we move on a little further about kids still. Um, we had a... Uh, Dr. Daniel Seagraves with us at our church and he had something to say that my dad said to me and I asked Brian I said you know this would be a good question to ask somebody but whenever there is a a minister and they make this statement to their kids be careful what you do because it reflects me as a minister 
let me let me give some background on that. Dr. Seagrave said that whenever his uh, daughter got a divorce, that he was considering leaving California. Well, actually, it was to the point where he was he was booking the U-Haul and saying, "We got to get as far from California as we can because nobody's going to want to hear." what I have to say about divorce or leadership or mentorship after my own family's dealing with this. And we, we hear the, the stories like of brother and sister Lumpkin and Little Rock, and we hear stories like that where we almost blame ourselves for what our kids do. Why do ministers think that way? Well, I think probably, and I will speak for myself, so I'm not projecting on any other sure, ministers. Yes. I think there's the pride in me that wants to show I'm not only teaching others, but I've got my own house in order. Now, where that's where that's faulty is, and I'll maybe talk about this a little bit later. You know, as as parents, we are responsible for our children, you know, in in their growing up years. But then there comes a time when they start making their own decisions and start making decisions that deal with their salvation, and then they are responsible for themselves. And so I think that, and again, this can also be in, in church work as well. We have to understand the difference between being responsible for people and then being responsible to people. So my children in their formative growing up years, I literally was responsible for them, taking them to church, not giving them an option. You know, I never said to my kids, do you want to go to church today? Why? Because in their formative years, I was responsible for them. Now, when they grew and they started making adult type decisions about who was going to be Lord of their life, they then take that responsibility for themselves. But I then have to continue to be accountable and responsible to them. And so now with the station in life, my kids are at now I'm responsible to, but their decisions are their decisions. So for my children, God forbid would make a decision to walk away from the Lord. Now Uh, that is, and and I say this, there's always a hesitancy in me when I talk about this because some who have children that are not serving the Lord, used to serve the Lord and are walked away from the Lord now, may say, well, Tim, you don't understand where we're coming from. But I do know this, adults, I have to be responsible for my decisions. So if my children should decide today to walk away from God, that's their decision. I'm still going to be responsible to them, to love them, to share truth with them, uh, and be sensitive to that. But as adults, they're responsible for themselves. So that was a long winding answer there, uh, Tony. But uh, I, I think we, we all want our, our, our lives and the fruit of our lives to reflect who we are. And our children are, are first and foremost in that. I want to go back now, since I went back, I want to go forward back to where Brian was talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard a story. I want you to debunk this or tell me that it's the truth. Okay. When you came to Cabot, um, you were targeting people that were waiter waiters and waitresses because they had a um a sense of servanthood and you knew that those people knew how to serve and you understood that the importance that they are that they had in their life and it was people that not necessarily everybody wanted to go after but it's people that you saw valuable is that something you can speak about well if if you're asking was there a premeditated intention toward that no that's yeah. not true that's not true and the reason is is because i didn't see that harvest field coming we were just dealing with whoever God brought before us. You know, when, when Paul was, was coming into Athens in the book of Acts, uh, the scripture says that he stopped off in Athens to wait for his ministry companions to catch up with him, and then they were going on from there. But he saw the whole city given over to idols. 
So he went into the synagogues, or rather into the marketplace, and the Bible says he reasoned with those who happened to be there. So that says he was just there, and he dealt with whoever was there. And that's literally the way we started in Cabot. Uh, we didn't go like targeting a certain group of people or saying we're going after these people. Uh, you know, the seed is good for everybody. The same seed works for That's everybody. Right. So uh, it happened to be the kind of thing where that was the first harvest field, but there was no premeditation. As to well, I'm glad to hear that because secretly, if you would have said yes, I would have been thinking in my heart, well, you're missing people that God's willing to give you because you're targeting somebody else. Right. But right. tell us a little bit about how the church in Cabot started. You didn't You didn't start in a church with a steeple no. and pews. Tell us about that. Well, we knew one lady, Merva Bennett, and uh, so I asked her if she'd be willing to open up her home because we were Stacy and I were living in an apartment at the time. She said, sure, she'd be happy to open up her home. We had prayer and Bible study on Tuesday nights. At that time, we were still on staff at Word of Flame as youth pastor. So Pastor Lumpkin and I had worked out a situation where on Tuesday nights we would come to Cabot we would have prayer and Bible study in Merva's home. And then on Wednesdays and Sundays, we would be back in Little Rock as student pastor. We did that for about four or five months, and we realized because several people started coming to that Tuesday night prayer meeting and Bible study that it was growing to the place we needed to focus on Cabot. And so we made, at the end of 1999, we made the, the break from, from Word of Flame in Little Rock to Cabot. And uh, we just uh, kept having church in her living room. Uh, it grew from that into where we rented a, a Presbyterian church on Sunday afternoons and Tuesday nights. Uh, from there, we went to several other buildings, but it all started in her home. And uh, in fact, I'll just tell you an interesting little story. Our first mission service in Cabot uh, was in that living room. We had 19 people crammed in that living room. The missionary that was there was Bruce Howell, who is now our global missions director for the United Pentecostal Church. And he preached like he was at general conference <laughs> so we're in the living room there's 19 of us wadded up in there he's preaching the spirit of the lord is moving um, so tremendous beginnings humble beginnings uh you know interruptions by telephones and neighbors coming over to borrow sugar and all that stuff that you don't have in regular church buildings but i wouldn't trade it for anything in the world it, it was so 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 exciting and so uh, it, it was a learning process for sure what is the largest crowd number of crowd of people that you have ever spoken to? Uh, North American Youth Congress in 2013. Um, they told me there was probably about 18,000 there. Is it more intimidating to preach to 18 or 18,000? Well, I don't know if intimidating would be the word, but um, in some aspects, it's the same. And let me explain that. I'll just give you a little 18,000. When I was on the stage, the platform preaching in front of 18,000, I saw no one up close. When you're preaching in front of that many people, the closest people are quite a distance from you. So I had to almost imagine they were in front of me because when you're sitting in front of 18, they're in front of you. So I had to almost kind of bring this huge arena down to just a few in front of me. Um, now, I will say, if you give me the option, would you rather preach to 18,000 or sit across a living room table from someone teaching a home Bible study? As wonderful and as great an honor as it is to preach in those big meetings, I'll take the home Bible study every time. Because for me and my personality and how I'm wired, 
that's where you see true life change is one-on-one with people. Nothing I want to follow like up with that. Yeah. So you have, in 1999, you were sitting in a crowd of how many people would you say 19 in that living room? Yeah. Uh, well, that was in the year, that was right after the start of 2000. So yeah, we had 19 people in that mission service. And then you go speak to thousands at Youth Congress. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to us about the importance of holding on to God's word, even though you don't see it for yourself? Well, help me with that. Uh, so say that God gives you um, the opportunity or someone gives you the opportunity mm-hmm. to speak at Youth Congress mm-hmm. and you see yourself as unqualified, mm-hmm. but you've been called and you know that God has qualified you to do that, mm-hmm. but you, you struggle with that yourself. Can you talk about the importance of holding on to it even though you don't see it? Sure. Okay. Well, for instance, I think the calling of God is, is twofold. There is the calling that God gives you, and then there is the validation of that call that man puts on you. So, you know, back in 1988, I was called by God at an altar at a youth camp, and I knew it. It was dramatic for me. It was a one night that changed my life kind of thing. What youth camp was that at? That was at the, they called it Conqueror's Camp in Illinois. Oh, yeah, Conqueror's Camp. Same right. campground that, that you were talking about earlier. So that's a, that's a hallowed place for the boat. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah, and in an interesting turn, um, it was 20, let's see, 20 years later after I received my call at that campground that I was invited back to preach that same camp 20 years to the day that I got my call to What ministry. year was that? It was like 2008, so it was after the time. That's that, absolutely insane. Yeah. So that was pretty dramatic for me personally to know I was back at the same place where I got my call. I'm going to interrupt one yeah. last time. Man, no, it's, it's probably fine. like, stop interrupting. But no. I want to ask you who was preaching that youth camp. Do you remember when you got uh, your calling? Mark Foster. And does Mark Foster hold that special place in you? Oh, mind? absolutely. Yeah, no. And and Mark Foster, in fact, uh, I, I see him frequent, not, not frequently, but several times a year. And um, I told him one, I said, you didn't realize what you were doing when you were preaching that day because... That was a, a, a night that literally shaped the rest of my life. And, um, of course, that's gratifying for him to hear. And sure. Thing. I'm sure he has many stories of that over the years. But, yeah, he holds a very special place in my life. Okay, so now we'll get back on track. Yeah. You were at the Illinois campground when you got that calling and you held yeah. on to that. So yes. what was the importance of holding on to that, even though maybe you didn't understand the fulfillment of yeah. it? Well, I had been taught that your room, will, your gift will make room for itself. And if you're faithful over a few things, God will make you faithful over many things. And so my pastor modeled that to me. My uh, parents modeled that to me. My youth leaders modeled that to me. And so it gave me a foundation going into ministry to just put your shoulder to the wheel, start being faithful. Don't worry about the platforms. Don't worry about the pulpits. Let God take care of that. And so it... It gave me um, a good path to walk on. And so, uh, whereas some may really uh, go back and forth as to whether really did God call me, did not, I, I knew God had called me, but then people began to validate that call. And here's how they would validate that call. They would give me opportunity to say something in a Bible college class. And the Lord, thankfully, would help with that. And they would say, great. Here's what you did good. Here's what you need to improve on. All that helped refine that gift that God had given me and that call that God had put on my life. So again, it's the it's the call from God, what I found, but it's also man recognizing that on your life. 
And that's how God sets this thing up. I mean, we don't, we don't, we're not called and then we're in a vacuum the rest of our life. We're around people. And then you start seeing fruit from the call and fruit from your ministry. I'm going to ask you to minister to somebody right now that uh, it's a scripture that we use quite often whenever we don't understand things that's happened to others. But there's a scripture that says the calling of God is without repentance and God knows what he's doing, you mm-hmm. know. It's, it's In other words, it's without regret. God knew what he was doing when he called you. So whenever that is said, that to explain people's situations, um, we were talking a little bit about restoration before we got on, on, on air here. And it, it kind of struck me because it's something I've been, I've been dealing with personally, is if God's called you and he knows what he was doing and people fall um, from ministry, not even just ministry, but maybe in their personal life. Maybe they didn't stand behind a pulpit, but they have fallen in, uh, in traps that the enemy have set up. Why is, I'm just going to ask you to teach us a Bible study. Why is the calling of God without repentance? Well, I think it, it comes down to why God calls us. I don't think God calls us just because that's kind of what he does or that he needs something to do. So he calls people into ministry. He calls us because he needs us to make his kingdom work on the earth. And so if he needs us initially and then we fall, he still needs us, but he needs us in a repentant state, in a humble state to where we can continue to help other people. Because when he calls us, there's a specific thing he has for us to do in the kingdom. Uh, Guys, one of the things that's the most rewarding thing about being in ministry is to see the beauty of the body of Christ. This body of Christ thing helps us from being superheroes in the kingdom. You know, I I didn't wake up this morning with a cape that has an S on it because I'm Superman. I woke up with a call on my life. And the call is to do what God has called me to do. And then I rely on Tony and I rely on Brian and I rely on everybody else that God has called to complete the body of Christ because we're incomplete without one another. So for someone who is called into ministry and then has a failing of some sort, for them to feel like God is done with them or he doesn't need them anymore is completely false. He needs them perhaps in a little different way now because now they can minister to people in a different way than they ever have before especially if they're responding correctly, repenting, being broken before God. Um, and, and that's something we need to, to stress every single day of our lives. So this is, this is my full loop of my question now. Yeah. You are now the Arkansas District Superintendent. You've come a long way from moving from Illinois to come and being a youth pastor with uh, Pastor Lumpkin. Um, there's been some great men before you as the Arkansas District Superintendent. Do you ever struggle with filling their shoes? Well, certainly we have a, a hallway here in the district campground that has pictures of all of the predecessors in the superintendent's role. And um, there are times I'll, I'll look at that and I, we can't help but look at that with honor because of the role these men filled in our district. Um, and, and yet I think that uh, it would be easy to think, well, am I the same as them or am I the same caliber of them? Well, we have to understand they may have thought the same thing, but they were recognized by their peers as a leader. 
And for whatever time God gave them, they fulfilled that role and trusted that God knew what he was doing. So that's how I approach the, the season that God has in my life right now. Um, rather than looking and asking myself, am I worthy? Well, no, I'm not worthy. Uh, none of us are worthy of even being alive. It's the grace of God that gives us salvation. But has God given me an opportunity? Yes. And so I'm going to just do the best I can. Not understate it, not overstate it, but do the very best I can to lead people for however long God should choose that. And then we're good. So that kind of keeps me going. So when Sister Donna Whittingham prints out your picture and puts it in a frame and Brother Larry Pierce comes in and puts that screw in the wall to hang your mm -hmm. picture on there after you've, after you've closed your, this chapter in your life, what do you want that legacy to be that you've left? Well, I want to maintain the same credibility to doctrine and ministry and kingdom that the men on the left of that picture have done. But I also want to set up the future on the right side of that picture. So whoever is next in the frame has been enabled, empowered, taught, and released to be who they need to be in the kingdom. Um, I think that is so, so important in leadership is we have to hold on to the heritage we have, but we cannot forget there's people coming after us. So I have to, um, and, and I say that, gentlemen, with this little disclaimer, I'm not talking about being political because the way leadership in our district and any district is, is the, the brothers and sisters decide who that next leader is. But I have a responsibility to equip the next generation of leaders whoever that's going to be. I'm going to leave the selection process up to the Lord, but I have to impart good leadership to those individuals. And then God does the, the bringing to position and all of that. In all of your ministry, have you ever wrestled with a feeling of competition? Uh, you, you're, you have a twin brother that was a preacher. Did you ever struggle with feeling like I need to preach better than my brother? Or whenever you're superintendent, I've got to be the best superintendent that Arkansas has ever had. Or I've got to be the best pastor, the home, best home missionary. Have you ever been like, no, I, I've got to be. When you, when you hear other people tell about, well, they had 30 people get the Holy yeah. Ghost at their service. Did you feel like you were deflated because you weren't? you know, able to, sure. weren't there. Yeah, no, I think that's a normal thing to feel in our flesh. Um, and yet the scripture says it's not wise to compare ourselves with one another. And I think this goes back to the body of Christ. Because if my goal is to be the best, then I'm going to naturally compete with you guys. Well, here's the thing. It's hard for you not to whenever you had a twin brother preaching the gospel as well. <laughs> Yes, we're in the same field, in the same line of work. Uh, so I naturally, even as a twin, I, I, I've had so many stories of people coming up to me. and can, uh, I, can I request a story? Sure, sure. Your brother gets elected as general youth president, mm -hmm. and people are coming around congratulating oh, yeah. you. Tell yeah, us that night. story. So yeah, when Todd was elected. <laughs> oh, my word, yeah, that is Todd funny. Was elected did you not general. know this? No, I never knew they <laughs> yeah. did that. Yeah, of course, I was at that general conference, and he was elected general youth president. So because we look so much alike, people came up to me many times in that conference and congratulated me. And I told Todd, I said, Todd, I could really ruin you right now because <laughs> all I would have to say one time to someone congratulating me thinking I was him is 
it's about time. (laughs) (laughs) And if I would have said that one time, that would have got around and everybody would have thought my brother was arrogant and all that stuff. But all kidding aside, um, I think the whole comparison thing is really real in the ministry or is very real in the ministry. However, um, I want to be secure in how God made me. Because again, I'm a part of the body of Christ. I'm not the entire body of Christ. And so if I can be secure in who I am and rest in that and then let God... One of the prayers I pray often, guys, is God help me to represent you well today. Because he's made me who I am. He's gifted me how he's gifted me. So for me to try to become like somebody else, then I'm fake. I'm just a counterfeit walking around. But if I'm genuine as to who God made me, then he'll find his place to put me in the body to function correctly. So as we're sitting here talking about, um, you know, comparing yourself, I'm just going to ask you a very bold question, Brother Gaddy. Who, who's your pastor? James Lumpkin in Little Rock. Okay. So whenever you're, you took your fast, first pastoral role in Cabot, um, you, you could have very easily compared yourself or your ministry or did stuff the exact same way Brother Lumpkin did. Um, did you ever find yourself doing something like that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I find myself to this day um, doing certain things in ministry, and I say to myself inside, oh, that was Brother Lumpkin right there. Because you can't help but work with someone for seven years and you don't embrace some of their uh, ideas, some of their terminology, some of the ways they come at situations. But I also know that when you work with someone for a while in ministry, you get close enough to see the things that you would reproduce if you were ever in their role. And you also see some of the things that you would do differently. So we have a staff right now at Cabot, of, of a great team at Cabot. And I know this about them. Should they ever be in a senior pastor role, they will look back on their leading with me and say, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some things like Pastor Gaddy. But they will also, if they're honest, say, there are some things I'll do differently. So I think we have to be okay with that because that's just normal. That's natural life. And so, yes, far more things have I looked at in the last 20 years as a pastor and thought, boy, I am, I am Jim Lumpkin right now, you know, and how I'm coming at this. But then there are other things I've thought to myself, I think I can do that differently or God is kind of leading me a different path. I'm not talking doctrinally, but even methodology or, or that kind of sure. thing. And we have to be true to where we're at. So, um, Brother Gaddy, you, I, I, I want to tell you a story real here, mm-hmm. real quick here that's going to um, end in a question. Sure. Um, there's a man that I hold very high in my life that pastors a church and it's a rather small church that he pastors and I got to sitting back thinking one day I was like you know what I'm gonna call this guy and pick his brain a little bit it's somebody I feel comfortable enough to do this too and I called him up and I said hey bro I got a couple questions for you and I apologize for being blunt but I just want you to want to see you know how you think about things I said you spent a lot of time and money in your education um, you are uh, thriving in your education you're one of the smartest men I know um, and you pastor a church full-time and you go to school full-time, let me just ask you, do you ever feel defeated because you spent so much time and money and, and growing your knowledge biblically that it disappoints you that you only pastor a church of 30 people? 
And he said, it's very funny you ask me that because I dealt with this a couple of weeks ago and I called my pastor because I was struggling with it. And my pastor told me to pray about it. So I didn't take that lightly. I prayed about it. He said, I went before God and I said, God, you have got to help me understand. I pastor a church of 30 people. Why? I'm doing exactly what you've called me to do. He said he felt like the, the Lord audibly said to him, would you take the credit if I gave you 3,000 people tomorrow? He said, absolutely not. I know that's you. I would never do that to you, Lord. I would never do that. And he said, then why are you taking the blame for the 30 people that I've got in your life right now? Brother Gaddy, I want to follow that up with this question. You started, and like we've all learned, in, in the living room of a home to where you're now breaking ground for a new church because you've outgrown your church. What are some things that you have implemented in your church to, to grow at the pace that you're growing? You have, like I said, a thriving church right now. What did you do to put in place when you first got in there in 1999 to where you're at today in 2019? Well, I think, first of all, uh, we had to develop and establish what our non-negotiables were going to be because I think non-negotiables are exactly that. They don't change no matter how big the church gets numerically. So, for instance, non-negotiables for us in Cabot, uh, prayer, teaching God's Word, and people. And so no matter whether we have four in a living room or 350 on a Sunday morning, our church is about prayer, teaching God's Word, and people. So those are uh, principles or truths that are regardless of the size. Uh, Secondly, I'm finding, I'm not going to put it in the past tense and say I've found out, but I'm finding that as a church grows, I have to review my role as a shepherd. And so whereas with four people in a living room, it was very easy for me to keep up with everything. Uh, I was the overseer. I still am the overseer, but I was the overseer of people. And then as the church grew, I was overseer of ministries, some of which I started myself or my wife started. As the church grows, in order to keep it growing, I have to review my role as a shepherd. I'm always the shepherd. I'm always the overseer. But now my role is more leading leaders who lead people. And uh, I think that's important. Uh, Jesus talked about putting new wine in old wineskins. And the the very essence of the wine will cause the old wineskin to burst. And so with that being kind of the pattern, uh, I have to keep growing as a leader. How I led 30 people would not work today. So not only does the church need to grow, the leader needs to grow as well. And I think that's a big part of continuing the growth process. And then thirdly, as I kind of look at this whole idea of of growing a church and, and a thriving church, we have to speak and we have to celebrate growth because you get what you celebrate. Uh, when you pull someone up front that has been involved for the first time in some sort of ministry and you just celebrate them, you're, you're celebrating them, but you're also telling the people in the church, this is what we celebrate. We don't celebrate people who sit in the back and are critical. We celebrate people who are on, on, on the move. And so speaking and celebrating growth is very important in my, in my estimation to a thriving church. You have to keep that culture of growth going in your church. 
Uh, now, in a growing church, somebody told me one time, they said, well, man, I don't want a growing church. I don't want a big church because there's a lot of problems. Well, my goodness, we got to just bow up and understand you're going to, more people means more potential problems, but there's more opportunity for kingdom impact too when you're, when you're in a growing church. Um, and then I'll say this and I'll, I'll finish with this. I think it's important in a growing church to lead bigger than you are. I had a guy come uh, when we had our first Sunday service back in 99, uh, November of 99. He was there for kind of the kickoff Sunday service. And we had like 83 people there. Like it was a super Sunday for us. Now, what I, do, what I didn't tell people is the next Sunday after that kickoff Sunday was passed, I think we had 12. So it was like the greatest of Sundays. And then reality hit us the next Sunday when we had back to 12 people. But the guy that was there for our kickoff Sunday uh, came back a few weeks later after we were back to normal, 12 or 13. And he said, Brother Gaddy, one thing I noticed in the church is that you're, you're putting the service together as though you're bigger than you are, numbers-wise. And, and I, I took that as a compliment. We weren't trying to be something we weren't, but we were leading bigger than we were at that current time because there would be a tendency if you if you got just a few people sitting in a room to kind of slough it off oh we're humble this is humble beginnings but if if the work of god's worth doing it's worth doing with excellence let's do it with everything we've got those those 12 people they're worth that they're worth us giving our very best in that service too and so that's just a culture building thing that helps us uh, so lead bigger than you are so whenever you're pastoring how has your process of pastoring changed you as a man oh goodness it's taught me how human i am my goodness um i think one of the pitfalls in pastoring is to place all of your uh significance in the decision of other people um it's so wonderful guys when you're leading and people are deciding to follow what you're saying that makes you feel good it's not quite as a a fuzzy feeling and a warm feeling when you preach your heart out or teach and then people still decide to walk in a different direction Uh, so i think we have to find our significance from our walk with god rather than simply letting it be determined by people's decisions and because if if everything about my life and the value that I place on myself is determined by how someone responds to what I say, then I'm letting them determine success for me. But if I can be okay with planting God's word and then walk back and said, God, I did what you told me to do, then we leave the increase up to him. We got to do our part, but we can't play the part of God and and somehow uh, think that, that we're responsible for the increase. That's God's job. We have to be planting. Can I ask you, what, what is an element of your humanity that you're having to still work on? Yeah. Uh, patience is something that is very easily tried when it comes to pastoring. Um, and, uh, you know, when, when your patience is tried, uh, it tests the fruit of the Spirit in your life. When you're leading people, there's a reason why they're called the fruit of the spirit because you've got to let the spirit lead and guide you, and you can't you can't just uh, go in your own flesh or your own responses. So patience is, uh, you know, preachers naturally think that they're right. You know, mm-hmm. if I'm gonna get up and preach tomorrow, I'm gonna I feel like what I'm saying is right. 
So if I'm not careful, I can cross over to think, well, because I'm right, you, sh- you should just do this. And, and yet there's a, there's a process people go through in, in getting that information, deciding for themselves. So it, it tests patience for sure, but we have to lean on the Lord for that. What is the, is that the biggest test of your patience? As far as people and, and their response? Um, I, I think so. And I, I will say this, another thing about pastoring that, that tests me is when a, when a group, when a church per se, and I remember this several years ago in our church, grew to the point that I couldn't control it. And when I say that, I don't want you to take that the wrong way. I'm not talking about that I want to control it. But, you know, there's, there's a certain size you get to in a church that you can touch everything and feel like you can go to bed at night and everything's kind of under your oversight and your control. But if the church is going to continue to grow, there will come a point that something gets beyond your control. And you have to then trust other leaders and other people and systems and processes. So that has been admittedly something that I've had to work through over the years is being okay when something is beyond my control and trusting that what I've put in other people will be followed through. So releasing is something that that probably all pastors have to work on, Then you would say. Pastors of growing churches, yes. yes. As long as it's controllable, you don't have to worry about releasing other people. But if you want to grow to where it's beyond your control, you have to trust other people. And there's risk involved in that. When you take that risk, what does it feel like to you when it is as successful as you could have ever imagined it would have been? When it's as successful, there's nothing like that because then it validates this was the right decision. You know, when, And plus you grow other leaders. When I release someone to lead on our team and under their leadership, it grows. Not only has the whole church grown, they've grown as a leader, and that's my job. Tell us about when it's unsuccessful. Yeah, when it's unsuccessful. Well, we can't minimize, we can't take away all risk. In fact, I think a growing church will always have risk because you're putting confidence in people, and people sometimes will let you down. So that hurts and that stings because it's not just that they let themselves down. They let you down in something you release to them. So there's a natural tendency to feel bad. Um, but you know what? We have to just kind of walk back into it, try again. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the model Jesus taught us. You know, he, he invested his life into 12 men. And one of them, in fact, all of them except John were gone at the end. Uh, but he didn't give up on people. He gave his spirit to a bunch of people, and then that has blossomed into what it is today. So we can't let risk uh, paralyze us from just doing what we need to do in the kingdom. I want to ask you one quick question and then uh, go back to when you talked about having your your core doctrines, your non-negotiables in your church. Uh, My quick question is, do you think for you, it is easier to pastor a church you've started or a church that was established? Well, I really can't answer that because I've never pastored a church that was an established church. I've worked in a church that was an established church, but the, the buck didn't stop with me. Right. So I think for me necessarily to answer that wouldn't be true because I, I don't know what that's like. Um, there are certain things that I've found and seen in having worked in both environments that I think are, I'm kind of biased. You know, when you start mm-hmm. a church, you help build the culture. You, you form it. Uh, you don't have to fight against 
this is the way we've done it for a hundred years kind of mentality sometimes. Uh, now, I will say this, the longer a church is around, even 20 years now, it, there can be, if we're not careful, we've never done this before like this. And then you're established. Now. now you're established, you know, so you have to continually keep things fresh, have your non-negotiables, but keep methodolo- methodology fresh and things like that. Um, but yeah, there there are things about planting a church that I'm in favor of. Yeah. With your uh, non-negotiables, if you yeah. could only pick three books of the Bible to preach them from, which three would you use? Yeah, that's an interesting uh, question. And so here, here we go. I, I, Let's I w- find out who he is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I would pick Genesis because I'm a big believer in the principle of first mention in Scripture. That the first time something is mentioned, it carries the theme through for the rest of the Bible. And that is the book of origins. Right. And just in my study of the book of Genesis, salvation is mentioned in the book of Genesis. The sanctity of life is mentioned in Genesis. Submission is mentioned in Genesis. Sacrifice is mentioned in Genesis. So there's so much inherent within that book that really the rest of the Bible uh, brings about. So Genesis, book of Acts, because it's the history book of the church. It's the pattern for the early church. And then probably thirdly would be the book of 1 Corinthians. And the reason why I say that is because 1 Corinthians specifically, um, historically, I think Paul probably wrote three letters to the Corinthians, two of which found themselves into the canon of Scripture. But 1 Corinthians shows the humanity of a New Testament church. You know, if I ever want to Mm -hmm. feel better about our church, I read 1 Corinthians because they had some real issues, you know. Uh, And yet it was in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where Paul said this. He said, I didn't come to you with excellency of speech, but I came to you in the power of God and the demonstration of his power. And I, I I didn't want to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. So... That book not only speaks to the humanity of what it means to be a New Testament church, but a leader's decision on how to lead that church. So those three books is what I focus on. That, that, is, that is very cool. Tony's asked me that before, and I said, well, I'd have to start with the book of Genesis, because when I start my Bible bread program, I at least make it through Genesis in the first year. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you can check that book off. Yeah, uh, Brother Gaddy, I want to talk a little bit about success and failure with you. Sure. Um, so there are pastors that tend to feel responsible for spiritual success of those under their influence. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, ultimately, you cannot make decisions for them. We've we've already discussed that. I mean, they, they're 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 human. There's a human element there. Um, when people that you have invested in fail or fall away from the church, mm-hmm. how do you cope with that personally? Well, it's never easy. Uh, especially for pastors, because we, by nature of the calling God has in our life, are shepherds. And um, Jesus gives a pretty good example in Scripture in the Gospels. When one sheep wanders away, that shepherd will leave the 99 and go find that one lost sheep. And I know that's a cute little story that sounds nice, that the shepherd loves the sheep, but it speaks to the heart of a shepherd so it's never easy, even when one person walks away. Um, I, I think that in, in negotiating that, uh, that pain of that, I have to never forget that we're called to plant and to water as leaders. Again, and I'll say this again, God gives the increase. I cannot do the job that God says he'll do 
but I have to be faithful in what God has called me to do, and that is to plant and to water. Um, Paul said to Timothy, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season. He didn't say preach the word and decide for them. He said preach the word and then let the word, the living word, do its work and let, let them decide. So, um, yeah, it, it's never easy when someone walks away, but we have to keep in in mind what God's called us to do. How busy is your week? Busy. <laughs> busy, but it's not out of control. And um, I lead a busy life um, that are based on my roles. Um, and I'm a child of God first. Uh, I am a husband and a dad second. Uh, I'm a pastor of a church. Uh, I'm a district superintendent. I'm a speaker at various events. And so because of that, I have to keep my roles in balance. Um, I don't have to uh, say yes to everything. In fact, some of the most empowering words that a preacher can say is no. Uh, and because I have a responsibility, gentlemen, to be a steward of my life. We talk about stewardship a lot in, in terms of money, but I have to be a steward of my life. I have to be a steward of my influence. I can't say yes to everything. So that was kind of thoughts that spawned off of your question. It's busy, but uh, my wife helps keep that in balance too. So with all of that, how do you make time to prepare next Sunday's message? Yeah, I heard someone say one time, uh, preaching is, is interesting because, um, you know, we're trying to lead people to the throne and we don't even know what we're preaching next Sunday. Um, for me, I have to, first of all, understand how God speaks to me and then understand the pattern of my life. And I hope that makes sense. All of us have patterns to our life. It's kind of systematic ways that God speaks to me. So for me, uh, I will in prayer, and, and, I, and I'll say this, we as ministers must never divorce ourselves from a daily walk with God because I have to believe God wants to use me to speak to God's people. So if that's true, then he wants to speak to me as to what to say to those people. And if I just wait until Saturday to oh goodness, I have to preach tomorrow, God, what do you want to say? And I don't spend time with him daily. I'm not listening to what he's saying. I'm not listening to his voice. And so the Lord took me on a journey a couple years ago on this, and um, he challenged me. And I've been serving the Lord my whole life since I was 13 when I received the Holy Ghost and was water baptized. But he, he's challenged me. He said, I, Tim, I want you to read at least a chapter a day in the Bible. And I want you to write down what it is that I'm saying to you from that chapter. Now, there's days I'll read more than one chapter, but I want you to really dive into my word speaking to you. And so I brought this with me today. This is my journal. And there are some things that are for sale in my life. If you give me enough money, you can have my car, you can have my truck, you can have my house. You can um, probably buy half of my attic. Come help me clean my attic and buy half of the stuff or I'll give it to you. You can't have this. Because, can, we, can we look through it? Yeah, yeah, yeah you can, you can. Okay. But like, for instance, in this journal, uh, this is what God is saying to me. And here's the interesting thing about this journal. Um, this particular one, I'm about two-thirds of the way through, maybe a little, uh, about two-thirds of the way through filling it up. Most of what's in here 
doesn't find its way over a pulpit, but it finds its way in my heart. And so in answer to your question, Brian, about how do you prepare for sermons, I've got to stay connected to him because he really does want to tell me what to say to people uh, or what he wants to say to people through me. Uh, so I have to stay connected. You know, John 15 is in the Bible for a reason. You're the vi- I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you abide in me, uh, you're, you're going to bring forth fruit. Brother Getty, I was, I'm going to ask you our final question now, but this yeah. isn't our final question. Okay. Um, but you brought up your, um, your journal there, mm-hmm. and you write down stuff that you're dealing with or God's laid on your heart. I want to ask you, what is the Lord speaking to you right now? Yeah. Well, as I was thinking about this, uh, the Lord directed me back to something he said to me a few days ago. So I'm going to read it to you, okay? Because one of the things I do is I not just write down what God is speaking to me. And like, for instance, right now I'm in First Chronicles, and there's parts of First Chronicles that are very historical. Uh, so-and-so beget so-and-so, and this yeah, person. Six chapters worth of just yeah. this person was this person's daddy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'm trying to go, and the Lord's saying, what am I saying to you? And I, I'm, yeah. I'm writing down some, you're saying to me a they had a lot of kids. I mean, that's what you're saying to me. <laughs> but within the context of all that, I have to believe it's a living book. So I was in First Chronicles 22. This is August the 28th, one of the things he's been speaking to me recently. David wants to build a temple for the Lord. And the Lord says to him, no, no, you're not going to build a temple, but your son is going to build the temple. So David had a decision to make. What am I going to do about that? Am I going to get my feelings hurt because God said no? Or am I going to help the next generation build the temple? So David begins to prepare for the temple, sets aside uh, wood and and gold and all all the things that went into the temple. Solomon rises up, his son, and David says to Solomon, you're going to build the temple for the Lord. And guys, I got to looking at this. The Lord never told Solomon to build the temple. His daddy told him to build the temple. And Solomon said, Okay, now here's the thing. David's name is not on the temple. When we talk about the temple in the Old Testament, it's always Solomon's temple. So David had a decision to make. Am I going to prepare for the temple even though my, I don't get naming rights? Even though my name's not going to be attached to it? And so I, I was reading that and, and the Lord spoke to me and, and he just kind of ministered to me is... Tim, is it okay if, number one, you, part of your ministry is to carry out what your fathers, and I say that fathers in the gospel, have desired for this generation to carry out? Because there's an element to what I'm doing right now that has nothing to do with my ideas. It has to do with the people on the left side of the picture, like we were talking earlier. Who who are some of those fathers, real quick? I'm I'm not trying to throw you off track. No, no, that's fine. You only have just a few pictures that are here in, yeah. in your office on the campgrounds. And and I see, I think that's a picture of you and Kenneth Haney. Yeah. Uh, is, is that you and, uh, is that? James Lumpkin Sr. Okay. Yeah, he's former district superintendent. Okay. But he's also my pastor's father. He's passed away a number of years ago. So things that James Lumpkin Sr. stood for, uh, and specifically now in this season of my life, his role even here in the district so I'm carrying on his legacy. Kenneth Haney was my pastor for four years when I was in Bible school. Um, I'm carrying on the things he poured into me. Certainly my pastor. My pastor growing up who baptized me in the name of Jesus and prayed me through to the Holy Ghost, Charles Cardwell. I'm carrying on. You know, his generation is pointing at me saying, build it, build it, build it. 
and I have to decide I'm going to do that. It wasn't something that I created, but I'm going to do that. But then Solomon also uh, had to put his touch on the, on the temple. So he's building something, but he's also creating something as well. And so I have to be willing to do what the previous generations are calling me to do, but also lead how I feel led. And that's what the Lord spoke to me that day in August. Uh, and so one of the things in my journal I do as well is I write out prayers. And I used to never do that before. Now, when I say write out prayers, not, they're not real long. Maybe it's just one sentence. Lord, help me to represent you well, follow through on previous generations, and yet lead effectively today, something like that. So this has really revolutionized my life in the last couple of years. So about your journal, you told us about some stuff that God's given you that you can see yourself doing. Is there anything in that journal that's got tear stains on it because it was tough for you to to take something you Oh, absolutely. With? Yeah, absolutely. And let me tell you why I ask that question is because two years ago we had uh, Brother Jeff Morgan preach a day session at Arkansas camp. And mm-hmm. I was sitting with the rest of the musicians on the platform on the end um, <laughs> right where my pastor could watch me. He was sitting on the side there. And Brother Gaddy, I'll, I'll be 100% transparent, there was no less time I wanted to be off the platform than that because what Jeff Morgan was preaching about was removing the mask and where God can finally deal with you. And I sat there with my, my whole left shoulder and face exposed to the whole congregation. And I sat there and I, would, I, I wept through 90% of that message because of how relevant it is that we as apostolics need to remove some parts in our life where God can finally deal with us. And um, Brother Morgan was very transparent in that message. And I encourage you, if, if you've never heard that message, go find it. I'm sure it's for sale somewhere. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's worth the investment. But Brother Gaddy, the reason I bring that up is in that journal that you've written down on stuff that you've struggled with that um, God has laid in your heart that you've, you, know, you just don't see, but you write it down. Um, can you share with us why you choose to write it down even though you don't agree with it yeah. per se? Well, this journal for me is kind of like a, an unveiling of who I am. And many times that is best seen in your current reality. So for instance, uh, last year, uh, went through a season in leadership, dealing with some issues in leadership that were very difficult but it also revealed some areas in my life that I needed to do better in. And that's the beautiful thing about the grace of God is he allows difficulty to refine some things in you. He doesn't bring them in our lives to destroy us. He builds something in us if we allow him to build it in us. And so in my journal, I I wrote down some of the things that God is dealing with me, showing me some areas of my life that need to improve. And that's always tough. Because I think we naturally want to think we got it together. You know, we, we, I can do this. I'm, I'm, I'm fully in control. But most of the time, it's the difficulties that reveal those things. So, um, yeah, there's some tear stains on, on the journal because it's the refining process. As we were talking before we hit this record button, uh, you kind of was asking us a little bit about our podcast. And Brian and I don't like to talk about our podcast on the podcast, but you ask us, how many people we had listening to us Mm -hmm. and we're just a couple of notches away from 7,000. I want to say right here, thank you everybody for your support. But brother Gaddy, if you could speak to everybody who's listening right now 
about the importance of yes, you're hurt now, but hold on. Wow, that's uh, that's the key, really. Um, I'll speak to that by giving you an analogy, and it's a real life analogy. Uh, years ago, I belonged to a gym, fitness center, but I never went, so it's kind of useless, you know. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. In fact, my wife would drive by with the kids if I wasn't with them, and she would say, kids, wave at the place that daddy donates his money to. (laughs) Um, That's cold-blooded. Yeah, it is. That is. (laughs) But the few times that I would go in there, you know, I would notice that, like, these big, beefy guys who are, you know, they've been pumping iron for years. And here's Tim, you know, who I, I don't know if you can tell, but I haven't been pumping iron for years. And so can you imagine if I would walk into the gym and I would take my take my ink pen, and I would put it in my hand. And I'm I know the listeners can't see this, but I would just begin to curl it. I would sit on the the bench and I would just begin to curl the ink pen, and you know, oh, feel the burn, you know, that kind of thing. People would look at me strange, and the reason why is because that ink pen provides no resistance at all. But if you put twenty, twenty five, oh goodness, if you put fifteen pounds mm-hmm. on there, and I begin to curl it, now what is resistance? actually is building something in my life. And uh, the Bible is full of examples of people that they tripped up. There's no way around that. Uh, People that cursed God, people that walked away from God, uh, people who denied Jesus Christ. Apostle Peter is a great example of that. Uh, So we all have a decision to make. What am I going to do with where I'm at right now? Do I wallow in this? Do I allow it to define my life? Or do I accept and embrace the grace of God, learn from this, and get better through it? And I'll say this, over the years in ministry, the things that have taught me the most were the difficult times, not the mountaintops. It's the things that refine some things in me. And God is so full of grace to bring that in our lives. Nothing like it. I I wouldn't choose that path because it's a lot less painful to rejoice on the mountaintops but god is full of grace to give us teaching times in the valleys as well you get it's true what you said tony's we've got to keep going i listened to a podcast one time where a boxing trainer was speaking about how he whenever mike tyson was a young man he was one of his trainers and mike tyson we'd had to pull up the record to find out i think he was like 23 and 4 or something like that And his trainer um, said something kind of controversial because he said, in my opinion, he's 0-4. And And the person who was hosting the podcast was like, well, why is that? And Tony Atlas responded and he said, because every time Mike Tyson got in the ring, he was so far above all of the competition that all it was was an athletic, athletic performance. He would just knock anybody out because he was so skilled. But the only times he ever faced anybody that had the skills to give him resistance, he failed every time. Hmm. And so in my opinion, he wasn't this great heavyweight boxer. But he said inside, he, he, he ran from the adversity. When adversity showed up, he didn't know how to handle it. Mm-hmm. And, and there are times in our lives where adversity comes and, and we don't know how to handle it. What can we do, Pastor, to as ministers, as individuals, whatever the situation may be, to prepare ourselves because adversity is going to come, whether it be on your job, 
uh, is going to be in ministry in your home, what can we do to make sure we are solid enough that we can stand against what is coming to resist us? That's a great question. And the scripture says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, spiritual wickedness in high places, etc. So that's a divine conjunction right there. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but what Paul is saying, we do wrestle. So we have to realize, first of all, it will there will come opposition. Anything uh, that brings about good in our life many times is at the expense of difficulty. So we have to just steal our backbone and understand this is going to happen. Uh, and then we have to lean on the right things. Uh, my wife and I... Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, we're dealing with a situation just in leadership and, and not in our family and our marriage, but just in leadership and, and church work and things like that. And it was causing me a lot of anxiety. It was causing her a lot of anxiety. And all of a sudden, I remember, never will forget sitting in our, our kitchen one day, and it hit us both at the same time. This is the opposition of the enemy. You know, I was trying to qualify it away. This is just a bad week. It's a bad season. It's a bad time. And all of a sudden it dawned on both of us, and thank God it did. This is the enemy trying to defeat us. And so we linked up together, unified together in prayer. And that caused us to to persist till victory came. So I just think we have to get some backbone, to be honest with you. Um, Offense will come, the scripture says. Opportunities for offense will come. Difficulties will come. If we really believe the Bible's our pattern, well, it, it's full of examples of people that went through things, but they were better, many of them better on the, on the other side of that. So I don't know if that answers your question, but mm-hmm. it's we just have to realize that's a part of living for God. That's a part of leading. Do you feel like a lot of people are watching you everywhere you go? Yes. What do you do in a practical sense to, because you're in a very prominent role, to... Make sure there is never any question or suspicions about your ministry. Yeah, boy, that's a super question. We have to live above reproach. I heard a story one time that Billy Graham, when he would check into a hotel, uh, he would never answer the door Mm. in his hotel room because he said all he needs is for someone with ill intent to have a camera and a woman Mm. knock on the door. He opens the door. They shove the woman at him and take a picture. Mm -hmm. So he would build in a safeguard where he would never answer the door. Now, I'm not comparing myself to Billy Graham, but like, for instance, when I go to hotels, uh, I I do that. I never answer the door. I'll I'll put the do not disturb sign on the door immediately when I walk in there. Latch the door because, and again, I just don't want to give the enemy any room for... uh, for instance, and, and this is real practical, but, but riding in a car, being in an enclosed area with a woman that's not my wife, I just won't do it because you don't get a second chance. You know, there are some people you're guilty if you're just thought to have been guilty. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm not going to give, um, with God's help, I'm not going to put myself in that kind of environment. Uh, because again, I, there are a lot of people looking at me, first and foremost, my family my children, my wife. Uh, but then as you grow in leadership, more people that are looking at your example. So uh, those are just some practical things there. Um, for instance, just a, an aside, I went to rent a car uh, from Enterprise, rent a car a couple of years ago. 
and the rental place was like literally a tenth of a mile from our church and so my wife dropped me off and you know that's the company that picks you up and yeah. carries you to car and the uh the gal that the only person they had to take me somewhere to the car was a woman and i said no it's a tenth of a mile from where we were going i said no i'm so I'm sorry and they looked at me like what in the world are you talking about we're going right around the block but i i can't afford for that to be seen for the sake of convenience for the sake of convenience and sure i could tell someone all day long oh yeah she was just taking me that's not the issue the issue is i have to be above reproach and i need god's help with that it's not in my own power so i have to lean on him for that so to what you're saying is the church has changed over the years is there stuff in place that you implement to evolve the 21st century church? For example, about, don't call my pastor in the boardroom and ask him why I did this, but about six or seven years ago, we had a children's revival at our church with, uh, I think it was Jeremy Joyce, and um, we hit a, did a superhero theme. And we built this, we didn't, Craig did, built this huge Gotham City that was on our platform. And we got the bright ideas. Hey, let's dress up as superheroes and come in on motorcycles through the sanctuary. Mm-hmm. And we went to our pastor to get permission to do something like that. And to my to my surprise, he said, absolutely no problem. I thought there'd be a little pushback. And I asked him, you know, why? Why would you be so willing, you know, to do something like that? He said, because we're competing with Hollywood. And the kid might never come to church or never get baptized or never darken the doors of this building again, but they'll never forget where they were when they saw Batman riding in on a motorcycle. Where they, They'll never forget where they were. Mm-hmm. So is there something that we can do, Brian and I's generation, that holds the value still but reaches a generation that's completely different than when Brother Lumpkin was, was sure. around pastoring and the superintendent? Because you're, you're two generations removed from that. Right. What is it something that you're doing different that even Brian and I is going to have to do different? Sure. Well, a couple of things come to my mind. First of all, is we can't let go of non-negotiables. And so we have to determine what will not change. And whereas I think methods have to change, non-negotiables cannot change. Personally, I think non-negotiables, and I mentioned that for our church, is prayer, teaching the word, and people. Doctrine, apostolic doctrine, non-negotiable. So we're not going to like throw that up in the wind and see where it blows and all that. It's non-negotiable. Uh, now, methods to reach people, I think, are sometimes determined by culture. Uh, you and I, or I know with the Crucial Conversation podcast, you all use social media to promote your podcast. None of us saw that 25 years ago. How right. foolish you would be to not utilize it today, as long as it's in a way that's constructive. Right. And, and, and to that note, I work for FedEx, right? And I love calling my grandma because she's so far removed from the technological right. generation. It's unbelievable. I, I was telling her now that FedEx is about to go seven days a week, and if you you can order groceries now from Walmart, and if you live in a major city, if you order it by eleven a.m they will actually stock it in your house for you. Mm-hmm. Not FedEx, but a Walmart employee. But we, we deliver that in a in a box for you right to your front step. Mm-hmm. I, I asked her, I said, Grandma, did you what would your grandma or mother think of yeah. something like this? You know? Because 
the methods that she raised my mom, I can't use the same methods that I'm raising my daughter. Right. You know, so we, we as apostolics, we have to flow with the times, but we cannot jeopardize the doctrine. We have to stand steadfast in what we truly believe and understand. Absolutely. And I'll say this, uh, you know, we are an organization and I use that speaking of the United Pentecostal Church, but then I know there's other apostolics and otherwise that are listening to your podcast. We respect the local church. And we respect the authority of that local pastor. So whereas what may be permissible for one pastor in methodology may not be permissible for another pastor in methodology. So rather than say, well, bless God, he does this, you should do this. We, we respect that I'm the pastor in Cabot. I have to answer to God for Cabot. I don't have to answer for God for Jonesboro. I have to answer for Cabot. And so we respect that, but we also have to respect the culture in which we live. And so glean as much good as we can from, from methodology and changing technology and all of that, but not at the expense of the message, Amen. the doctrine. What would it, should our generation's response be to those that do compromise, of our peers that do compromise on the message as we're trying to move forward? How should we see others? Uh, how do we interact with them when we see them, if it's at a meeting or something like that? Um, how do we keep our Christian character towards someone that has walked away from Christian principles? Well, we have to continue to love. We have to continue to love people. Uh, we have to dig deep in our own personal life to not go that way, but we have to love people uh, because that's fruit of the Spirit is love. Uh, and, and then uh, reach and as opportunities open up. Most of the time i found when people walk away for at least a period of time, they're closed in their minds to coming back to apostolic doctrine or whatever the case may be. But we have to be sensitive as friends to when the, that moment's right and they're open to coming back, to lo- heavily, having loved them step in and, and lead and guide them back. So um, it's twofold, loving and solidifying in our, our spirit where we stand. So when, when you look forward now, uh, because you're in a place where you have to look towards the future, preparing mm-hmm. for the future, right. what do you see is the next thing that's probably coming to the church? Like with me, I think, uh, and I'm, I'm kind of skeptical on how it's all going to work out. I see, you know, with, with the, the thriving Netflix that's out there, things are on demand. You, you hear a lot of things on the demand. Tony's talking about Walmart is going to you order it online. They bring it in. They stock it in your shelves. I, I'm I'm curious to see how our generation generation reacts to on demand on demand preaching. And I think that in a way, kind of like what we're seeing with the podcast, like we're doing now, is is a, a step in the future. That, that's one of the things personally I see is is coming down the line is with technology. It's going to be kind of an on demand kind of a thing, and it kind of reason why I'm skeptical of it is I'm interested to see how it's going to work in terms of the local church, whether or not the local church will still exist in the way that we see it now because of the way that on demand is. But anyway, but that was what I was thinking. But what would you think is one of the big things that our generation will have to answer for when you're looking forward to and how are you preparing for us to have the answer? Well, I certainly think with regards to like this podcast and other technological advances, uh, it is just ripe for discipleship. I don't think, however, we can ever replace live worship Mm -hmm. preaching. We never can replace that. And here's the reason why. Because that's our pattern in the book of Acts. Right. 
So when the question is posed, what's the church going to look like in the future? Well, that may be from a methodology standpoint that we answer that. But from what the pattern of Scripture is, it's preaching, fellowship, connection, giving. All those are things we can point back to the book of Acts and say they did that. We are restoring that on the earth today. Mm -hmm. And whereas other faith groups have wandered into emerging theology, creedal theology, sacramental theology, all of that, we believe in restoring the early church on the earth. And so... um, we can't let go of those things. You know, there are some things that only happen in an atmosphere of live worship. Uh, we have a webcast, uh, when I say a webcast, we have a live stream every Sunday of our church. And uh, we always, every Sunday, welcome everyone watching. And it's, it's great for people who are traveling or are shut-ins or things like that. Uh, but when people talk to me about how much of a blessing that is, especially people who are kind of marginal attenders, I make sure in a very loving way I remind them that's not a substitute for being here. No. Because there are some things that only happen in this environment here. I 100% agree with that. There's there's times where if Brian's out of town, I can say, hey, Brian, you got to catch up on last Sunday's message. I mean, you know, the service was absolutely incredible. You may not get that same feeling watching no. it through your iPhone right. screen that you can get in person. No, well, I, there's some right. of the greatest messages that have ever been preached. I've listened to them on playback on YouTube. And there was, I mean, I did personally never had, had an alter experience from it. Uh, you know, like I said, I think there is a big disconnect whenever you're watching it through a screen rather than a service. Well, and if you think about the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit can only be adequately demonstrated in the context of live people. Mm-hmm. So I can't be long-suffering toward my brother if I'm not in a community of faith. I can't be... Uh, practice true love and true gentleness and moderation and temperance and all the things that scripture calls me to be apart from a body of of believers. So I have to be a part of that for the fruit of the spirit to adequately shine out for me. Amen. And like I said, that's one of the things that I'm, uh, like I said, I'm skeptical to see how it all is going to end up working out with there's being the prevalence of Facebook lives and things like that, which I understand is what we have to do mm-hmm. in this generation to hope to bring people in. I'm just afraid down the line, there's going to be this faith movement of we're just the online church. Mm-hmm. And, and with that, there yeah, is no, there is no connection. <laughs> right. And, but like I said, it's an interesting time that we live in. Absolutely. And certainly with, with the, we're, we're in a revolution Unlike what, you know, the world has really seen in this technological revolution since, you know, the early 90s. Well, and let me say this, too. I think that sometimes we've looked at the day in which we live, and I've heard preachers say, well, the Apostle Paul didn't have webcasts and didn't have social media, and they turned all of Asia upside down. Well, that's true. Mm -hmm. But I would say the Apostle Paul never had social media. Apostle Paul never had webcasts. So I would say the same thing in, in light of, look what can happen today. That's right. Yeah. We'd be foolish not to use it. Yeah. Look at the, the impact that we're not selling the farm to say that technology is the future to replace live church. Mm-hmm. We're, we're believing it can be a tool to bring people 
to the yeah. local well, church. To it, that person, you should tell them, you know, you should chisel your sermon notes out on a on a rock and some. <laughs> yeah, well, the thing is, Paul didn't have social media online, but he did use the form of media that he did have. Sure. And that's the reason why we have the letters that we have. That's right. And like I've, I've heard Terry Shock say, he said, you know, you can talk all about you, you want about how bad the Romans were. Well, they built the roads and the gospel couldn't have been, you know, produced without the roads they established. That's right. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a crazy thing when we, we get into technology. We had a, a guy that was in our church that um, uh, I don't know what motivated him to do it, but he turned into Dateline NBC, and he uh, created a, um, a stage uh, account online to meet guys online, and he was posing as a 14-year-old online to, to see if he could, just to see how easy it was to find somebody online and in one day he had one person that was at the walmart waiting on him and uh, he 14 and, year old girl yeah and he and and six other people were met met the guy at the walmart and brought out the chat logs and I'm like dude what are you what are you doing and so i mean it's just and that's how easy it is in one day a, a young person can get connected online with with a predator like that like I said, yeah, social media and, and on the online presence, there's a lot of dangers out there. But there's also great opportunity, if it's used rightly, Correct. to pro- provide uh, an avenue to bring people into the local church. We just have to know how to use our social media correctly. We need to know how to safeguard to keep pe- keep us from people that have these kinds of motives. Um, like I said, it's a very interesting time what all is out there. One of the prayers I pray every day. Is, and it's a very simple prayer. God, help me to think right. Mm-hmm. Because any action I take is a result of what I think first. And so God, help me to think right. And I think as we stay connected to the Lord, He's going to help us have wisdom, especially if we pray for it, for what that looks like. What are we stepping into? What are we opening up to? What's the next method we can utilize but we can't do it separate from a walk with God because then if we're trying to do it in our own ability or leaning on technology or leaning on that, we're leaning on the wrong thing. We have to be led by the spirit. That's why daily walk with God is so important. Well, brother Gaddy, we appreciate you spending some time with us here. Um, I, we've already discussed how busy you are, but we don't take it lightly that you sit down with us. Uh, we always end with uh, two segments. We're going to ask you what you're reading. Uh, recommended reading. We're going like, to give you an opportunity for a final thought, something that's on your heart or something that we may have missed, something that you can really just share. What's what's your burden right now? But before I do that, I want to ask you three rapid fire questions. Sure. Uh, now, number one, top three favorite preachers. Top three favorite preachers. J.H. Osborne is one of my all-time favorite preachers. Uh, Mike Williams because of the depth that you get when you pre when you hear him um and uh, i will say he's a young man he's our district youth president i love listening to nate smith preach oh shout out nate smith (laughs) but the smith preached the first time at our church a number of years ago he's been with us for a while now and the construction of his sermon was such that i took him to coffee the next day i said where'd you learn to preach like that not from a skill standpoint, but from a structure standpoint, because it, it really was, uh, I, I was taught in Bible college, a three point sermon. And so without even thinking, 
I preach three-point sermons. It's just part of who I am. And I think when I heard him preach that day, he had three points. And so I naturally thought, I know you didn't go to Bible school. Where'd you learn that? Uh, but I really enjoy listening to him preach. I've had I've had some folks. I know, I'm jumping in on the, on the on the rapid fire, but I've had some folks ask me how to construct a sermon before, and I've pulled out the notes that I heard you teach whenever I went to one of your kind of closed ministry sessions when you talked about how the five things you do for the sermon preparation of starting the fire, uh, building the bridge, you know, relating the unknown to the unknown, telling what you said, and demanding action, and so uh, like I said. Everything that I've ever been able to present in our local church or even in the, the just few churches that I've been privileged to speak in, that whole development became through you, and I thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, my second rapid-fire question is, what is the most impactful sermon you've ever heard? That's a deep question, but it's a rapid-fire. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jeff Arnold preached a message when I was in senior camp. Again, we called it Conqueror's Camp in Illinois. Uh, Jesus is not a story. And it was the Friday night of that camp. Um, that would be a sermon that, from a communicator's standpoint, because he had the combination of humor, challenging, prayer, that whole thing, as only Jeff Arnold can do. Um, and then I, I, I'll just kind of give a second one here. Uh, I heard Jerry Jones preach a message when I was um, in, in camp as well, when I was younger, uh, and it was called Learning to Live Without God. And I'll never forget that sermon because the premise of the sermon was, I'm not afraid that any of you are going to go get in a car accident after camp is over and die and go into eternity. He goes, my greatest fear would be that you would learn to live your life separate from God. Just learn to exist, learn to be your own man, be your own woman. And that burned something inside of me because I never want to get to that place. So those are two sermons. Mm, that sounds like a good sermon. Yeah. My last question, uh, rapid fire question I want to ask you is, if you could tell anything to the next generation as an apostolic minister, what would it be? We need you. We need you now more than we've ever needed you before. Uh, the future of the apostolic church is in your hands. Uh, don't walk away from the doctrines that got us this way, this far but we have to have your involvement in the future. Uh, be confident in who God has made you to be. Uh, submit yourself because we'll never excel beyond our submission and be accountable. We absolutely are dependent on the next generation. What is a book you would recommend to uh, people, to the listeners out there? There's a book that I've kind of used as a Bible, and this would maybe skew a little bit more toward the leaders and even the pastors that are listening to the podcast, uh, 101 Things Every Pastor Needs to Know. It has really become a handbook for me in the methodology of church work. It's very practical. And so whether your church is small or large, it really has become uh, Gary McIntosh and Thomas Arne are the co-authors of that book. Um, Leonard Ravenhill wrote a book uh, Why Revival Terries and if you want a book that really challenges you personally for revival and prayer that's one that I would recommend it's an old book, it's been around a long time uh, those are two that come to my mind we want to give you the opportunity as Tony said to, to share your heart but one thing I want to ask just before because I'm going to ask I was going to ask you off air but 
uh, just in, in case it encourage and inspire someone. One thing that I, I've noticed that you've done since we, we've connected here today um, is that I, I think I've met you maybe once or twice before in, in, in various meetings. Tony, I'm not sure how many interactions he's had with you. But one thing that I've noticed that you've done throughout this conversation is you've been very intentional about saying our names mm-hmm. and even saying the name of the podcast. What is the value as a leader of connecting with somebody on that? Because I think I've heard you say, you say before about when you go to a restaurant, you always call the waiter or waitress by their name. Right. I want to add to that before you go. Uh, Brian didn't know about our interactions that we've had. Um, last three or four years, I've had the opportunity of playing drums at family camp every year. And with that comes the availability to eat with you guys and the preachers in the dining hall. And Brother Gaddy, something I've noticed about you, and I'm not sitting here patting you on the back, but something that I've told Brian even is um, you have a heart for serving. Um, You would not sit down and eat until everybody had gone through the line, and even still then you're going around refilling everybody's drinks. Why? Well, I just think that's the right thing to do. You know, uh, I don't mean that as a flippant little response there. But Brother Gaddy, you're the Arkansas District Superintendent. Well, I understand, but that is, that's a title. I want to live not by a title, but by who I am. And I've been given so much. Uh, I've been blessed far beyond what I deserve. And um, a few weeks ago, I had, I was pushing a vacuum cleaner in our church and I had someone about fall over themselves um, saying, oh my goodness, pastor, don't do that. Don't, you don't have to do that. And I said, no, let me do that. Because no matter where we go in ministry, we are one person that has, when it comes down to it, we've been saved by the grace of God. And I never want to lose sight of that. And so I said, let, let me vacuum. Yeah, we've got teams of people. I would never have to vacuum if I didn't want to. But every once in a while, I like to remind myself, this is what the kingdom's all about. Not in a, a self-serving way, and I really hesitate to even bring that up because I know now it's going to go out to 7,000 people. I, I'm not saying it for that pat on the back. I, I'm just glad to be saved. I'm glad to be in the body. I'm glad to have the privilege to serve. And so that's probably not the golden answer you're looking for, but, but I just, it, it's part of who I am. Will you share your heart with us? Uh, I, I'm, I'm absolutely amazed by what God will do uh, when you just are faithful. Um, Availability, I've, I've been taught this my whole life, availability is the greatest ability. Um, God doesn't use super people. He doesn't use the most talented. He just uses people that are available. And, the, and again, I've said it before, the, the greatest thing about the body of Christ is how he uses people to accomplish his, his kingdom. And that's why every person is important. Every minister is important. Every saint of God is important in a church. And I truly believe that the the world hasn't seen yet what will happen when the body of Christ truly comes together. 
I believe we're seeing it more now, but the greatest days for the church are ahead of us. And um, I'm excited. I'm excited for every day God gives me to be in the kingdom. I'm excited for what I see coming up down the line. Um, we had a young lady at our church that uh, started a P7 club last week. She had signups for her P7 club and 91 of her fellow students signed up for her wow. P7 club. I really believe the next generation is going to do things that far surpass my generation. And I'm so excited about that. So that's my heart. It's, it's rejoicing in what God's doing right now, but looking forward all while being anchored to what we've been handed by the previous generation. We're, we're plant, we're we're reaping in vineyards. We didn't plant. We're living in houses we didn't build. So it's a, it's a, a wonderful time to be in the kingdom. You can be a part of something that, far reaches beyond your current reach because we are all a member of the body and the future is as bright as we make it thank you for listening to the crucial conversation podcast